Uh, mate, you're getting old. You can't read my Bible. Um, <laughs> you had to squint a little bit there. Um, Good I Establish Church. My name is Lee. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Establish, and, uh, and that means that I get the wonderful privilege of teaching uh, from the Bible each week. Uh, I don't claim to know everything that there is to know about everything, uh, far from it, um, but I do believe that uh, when I look at the Bible, that Jesus gives answers to life's big questions, and the story of the Bible um, actually gives us a story which I believe is the best story to understand the world that we live in. Um, I've been a Christian for um, around about 20 years now, and before I became a Christian, I just thought that Christians were kind of like moral fun police. They were against anything good, and, uh, and, and I just didn't really like them at all. I thought that God was against everything uh, that was fun or pleasurable. Um, so it's really good, I think, that we're digging into particularly um, this big thing of is God versus sex? Is he against sex today? Because I think it's a very pertinent topic for us. Um, but before we do that, um, let me just tell you two things. Um, the first one is if you've got questions, we'll be, uh, my plan is to talk for a long time so there are no questions. Um, no, 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 that's, that's, uh, that's not what I'm aiming to do. Um, but if you have questions, um, you can text them to the number that's up on the screen. That number will continue on the back of the slides as we go along as well. So please do text in uh, your questions there. They are going to Liam's phone, um, his personal phone. We do apologize for that, but we do promise that we will delete um, your questions on that. If you have a question that you would like to be followed up on, please let us know. Um, so if you've got something that you'd actually like us to follow up on um, after today's gathering, then just indicate on there um, for that. Otherwise, we'll just say thank you for um, your questions um, as we get through. So why don't you pray with me and we'll get into it. And um, Father God, I just um, thank you so much that uh, you tackle some of these big issues um, head on. Uh, you're not silent about them. Uh, you don't leave us in the dark. Um, but Holy Spirit, I just ask that today you will fill us with a, a vision um, for what it is that you um, want us to see. Would you help us to wrestle um, with all of the tough bits? Would you help us to wrestle with not just the tough bits that we see on the surface, but, but actually deeper in the things that form how we think and how we actually react and, and, and work out uh, the biblical narrative of, of sex? Lord God, I pray that we can do that um, as people who hear one another well, as people who honor and respect one another, and do that ultimately in a way that honors and respects who you are for your glory. Amen. Uh, back in 1999, I was studying nursing at Queen's University in Belfast, and uh, we had been given a, an assessment, which was basically we had to um, give an anatomy lecture. And what happened was um, all of the different um, body systems were put into a hat, and each group came up and they pulled out of the hat a particular body system. And, uh, and I was one of the guys that got to go up the front for my group and pick out of the hat, and I open it up, and we get the reproductive system. And uh, because our group was so big, what we decided to do was we decided that one group would take the male reproductive system, and then our group would take the female reproductive system. And which was all good until I discovered that my good friend, let's just call her Beth, 
Um, Beth, if you're listening, thank you for this story. Um, but let's just call her Beth. Um, she had serious issues with saying the word vagina. <laughs> Sounds like some of you do as well, especially from <laughs> up the front. And um, every time she was faced with the possibility of saying the word vagina, she just froze and went into a frenzy. She couldn't do it. So we, of course, thought this was extremely hilarious, but in a very loving, kind of secretly torturing way, we thought we would help her with this problem that she had. And so for over the next kind of four weeks, um, every time we were together, we basically asked her all sorts of questions that ended with the answer, vagina, to see if she would actually get to see it. And, and, and actually, gradually, she got better and better. Initially, she was literally... Like, like shaking, because she didn't want to say that word. Then the moment of truth came. Beth, standing in front of 300 students, on the data projector, it was like one of the, the things that you had to write by hand, and was a very kind of big picture of the female anatomy. And she begins very, very strong by saying, um, hi, my name is Beth, and I'm going to talk to you today about the female reproductive system. And behind me, you will see the... And she kind of pauses, and you can just see that she's getting nervous, and she takes like a big gulp, and then very, very quickly and very, very quietly, she goes, vagina. <laughs> and, uh, and then for the rest of the talk and the rest of the presentation, every time she had to say the word vagina, she would just say it very quickly and very, very quietly for the rest of the presentation. And we thought we were kind of very proud of her on one hand, and then we thought it was also just pretty hilarious. Now, as funny as that story might be, right, the reason that Beth found it very difficult to say um, the word vagina was because she was brought up, like I was, in a culture that was fairly religious and conservative, where to the point where um, we believe that any talk about sex, even using anatomical names for body parts, was something that was just a little bit rude. And in fact, it was something that was maybe more than rude. It was just a little bit taboo. It was something that you just didn't do. And what that did was, and possibly this is your experience, um, even as you hear me saying that word in church, like of all places, that that actually because of that experience that we have, it left many of us asking whether or not God was even for sex in the first place. And, and I remember growing up as a kid just thinking that God was ultimately against sex. But is that the case? Is God really against sex? Well, before we get into it, let me just um, say two things um, before we get in. First, I'm not going to cover all bases today. I'm not even going to cover all bases of what the Bible has to say on this issue. I'm hoping to give you a, a bit of a, a, an overview and a bit of an understanding so that you go away and you look into this a little bit more yourself. Um, but the second thing is as well, this question I know for some of you will be very charged, will be very heavy. It's not actually just an existential question. It's, it's been a, a lived out reality because you've maybe been at the hands of Christians or churches or people using the story of the Bible in very, very negative and even evil ways against you. I'm very, very aware of that, and I'm deeply, deeply sorry that that's been 
your experience. And, and I believe that, that where I believe that God's moral vision for sex is, is a beautiful thing and is a thing that promotes flourishing, some of the things that I might say today will, will I, I, I think, maybe even sound a little bit similar and, and, and uh, you may find that hard. And, and I just want to say that, that if that is the case, would you keep on listening? Would you keep on listening? Would you keep on asking questions? And, and particularly, if it kind of gets you um, just in the wrong way, please, please come and speak to me, because that's certainly not my intention. Now, with that aside, is God against sex? Well, the first thing I want to say is that God is not against sex because he made sex, right? And not only did he make sex, he actually made it very good. In the Genesis passage that we read before, and as you read kind of the story of the beginning of humanity, what you see is that the things that God makes, he makes very good. And, and that includes sex. He called it very good. Now, do you get that? Sex is something that God created, and he created it very good. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? But it wasn't good just because sex in and of itself is good. It was created good because of the purpose of sex. It was good because of what it was intended to do. Now, that's what makes something good ultimately, right? It's that it meets its purpose. So if we've got a surfboard that floats on water and it carves and through the surf, we call it a good surfboard. Why? Because it does what it was intended to do. It meets its purpose. And, and the same goes for sex. It's called very good because it's a thing and a gift that God gives us that meets the purpose for which he designed it. And there's a couple of things that's really, really interesting, I think, to highlight here that we see about sex and its intention, what it's intended for and its purpose. And the first is that we see that it's good because it's relational. It wasn't made, right, as this thing in and of itself. It was made for the purpose of building lifelong, deep relationships between a man and a woman. Have a look at verse 24 if you've got your Bible open at Genesis 2. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, this is kind of talking about all the, the union stuff, and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. The, the one flesh bit, we don't have time to kind of really flesh it out, right? But the one flesh bit is the sex bit. And, and it's talking about way more than just physical sex. It's talking about the emotional and the, the spiritual and the psychological union that happen when two people have sex. Essentially, sex in the Bible is, is like the glue that binds people together. And, and it particularly in the story of the Bible, it binds a man and woman together in marriage. And the whole way throughout the Bible, that's what you see. You see that sex goes together with marriage. And it goes together with marriage for the purpose of making that marriage and that relationship strong. Now, one of the interesting things is about the purpose of sex as well, and the, the picture that we get here in Genesis is that I think we also see that sex is safe. Not that they need to have safe sex. That's not what I'm saying, but that they kind of feel safe and complete in every way. That they feel safe. 
Now, I don't know if you noticed it there. Where I'm getting that from is the fact that they were naked and they felt no shame. Now, I want to pause you there for a moment. Just think about that for a second and what that might mean for you if this story is indeed true. Because you see, what it means is that God created sex so that you could enjoy sex in deep, lasting, long, intimate relationship with someone where you feel completely safe and secure. No worrying about what the other person might think about your body. No fear of exploitation. No concerns about your performance. No concerns about whether or not somebody will just pack up and go as soon as gravity starts hitting in. No, no, no. The purpose is that sex is safe in every way. It's bound up in this relationship that's safe and long and intimate. But it's not just relational, right? It's actually also pleasurable. Sex is not just for relationship building or even just for procreation that some Christians have maybe said in the past, but it's actually also for pleasure. Now, that's pretty cool, right? Because you see, God gave it as a gift to us for pleasure. And sometimes when I hear Christians talking, it feels like God made the torso and the head and the brain and the arms and then Satan comes along and slaps on the genitals and uh, just there to thwart God's plan of holiness and sanctity and all of that kind of thing. But nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, there's a bloke named Origen who was a, a church father who castrated himself, I think, because he believed that. But nothing could be farther from the truth, right? Because you see, if this story is true, then God made us embodied. And because he made us embodied, he made us with all of the bits and all of the physiological makeup that actually means that we enjoy sex. He created our bodies to enjoy sex physically, physiologically, and psychologically to a point where we haven't even worked out yet entirely in science. Do you get that? Now, if you don't fully believe me, turn with me to the book, The Song of Song, and which is a whole book of poetry dedicated to sex. Now, if you've grown up in a Christian church and you're a bloke, you've probably kind of turned to this and tried to whisper it to the girl beside you at youth group or something like this. Um, I don't really recommend it. Uh, but here's what it says, right? Song of Song, chapter 7, verse 1. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is like a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is like a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. There you go. You're like a mound of wheat. Um, your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your stature is like that of the palm of your breast, like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath, like apples. And there's other parts of this poetry that speak the woman to the man. And you get this picture of them pleasuring and delighting in one another's bodies. That's the story of sex that we get in the Bible. Is God against sex? Well, if he made it, and he made it this way, I don't think so. But the problem is, I reckon in some way, many of you will go along with the fact that maybe, okay, for argument's sake, God made it. But as you were hearing me 
I'm saying some of those things, the alarm bells were going off, right? You were just going, okay, I'm kind of hearing what you're saying, but uh, 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 I don't really like it. Maybe because the mention of a creator um, or some kind of natural order or something that has purpose built into it is something that you're just completely against. It just reeks of authority and control. Or maybe because just the thought of sex with um, a lifelong partner just seems stifling and, and boring. But one of the main reasons I reckon that we ask this question, if God is against sex, is because of the presence of the rules that we see that God puts around sex. And, and maybe as you heard me even painting that picture before, you're, you're just hearing, at least between the lines, that there's a whole heap of restrictions that God puts on sex. Now, there is a reason why we're particularly attuned to this idea, right? So it's, it's important for us to understand a couple of things that form our worldview, and it informs everybody's worldview that sits in this room. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or you're still exploring who Jesus is. It doesn't matter what country you've come from, as long as you've come from the West, at least. And it's this. The first thing is um, the sexual revolution. Now, I didn't grow up in the 60s, but there are some people in here who did, and uh, back in the 60s, a significant thing happened in the West, right? And many people call it the sexual revolution, where basically what we saw was, was the, the overturning and the liberalization of long-established social and moral attitudes towards sex. A number of social and, and cultural things actually played into this, but probably two of the most significant that I think catapulted us into this and very quickly were no-fault divorce and then the uh, production of the pill. And, and what those two things meant was they, they actually meant that marriage and sex no longer needed to go together, that childbearing and sex no longer needed to go together, and all of a sudden we had this newfound freedom to have sex, the sexual revolution in a very simple way. And this revolution was particularly um, grounded in the fact that it was freeing you and freeing us from particularly the shackles of religion, the shackles of outdated cultural norms. We were suddenly making free love on the free love highway to a promised destination of more and better sex as a result of those lack of rules and restrictions and authorities. But the sexual revolution, right, didn't happen in a void. There's another thing that really shapes how you think today. And it's a thing called individualism. And uh, basically, that's not been a new idea. It's something that's been around since the 18th, 19th, or 17th and 18th century, um, where individual thought and reasoning um, came to the fore. And, and there were lots of really, really good things about that. But, but during the Enlightenment and up until more recently, what happened was the individual thought was always balanced with the truths and the claims that come along from tradition, your elders, the past, and external authorities. And, and individualism sought to balance the two. They said that you get truth from both of those things. But then what happened was, um, even though they believed that you needed both of those things for humans to flourish and for us to flourish, and what happened probably from about the 60s that started to change... 
And we moved into this thing where many people call radical individualism, right? And it's basically an individualism that seeks to not have that balance. Okay, so individualism, the balance between external authority and tradition, all of those things, and our own individual thought. And then what happened was we basically got rid of this one. And, and we essentially said that the only way that we can be our true, authentic selves and determine who we truly are is by listening to ourself. You can go back and listen to two weeks ago, the sermon kind of speaks a little bit about this. And the way that we kind of work out who we truly are is by expressing what we truly feel. And from around about the year 2000, what seems to have happened, according to some social commentators, is that we moved from being a we generation more explicitly to becoming a me generation. We moved from being a we generation to a me generation. Now, why is that important? Do you know why I'm telling you that today? Well, I'm telling you that because it pretty much means that you are hardwired to believe that sex is something that at best, that sex is something that at best at best, is something that should be free from the shackles of any external authority. And the way that you think about it and the way that you see any external authority or even nature is just suspicious at best. Our alarm bells go off straight away. Uh, uh, uh. And it's because of this foundation, I reckon, that it's very, very easy for us to hold on one hand, yes, I agree, maybe God made sex, but ultimately because of the presence of rules, I think he is against sex. And not only is he against sex, but he is also against me. And not only is he against me, I actually think that he is against human flourishing itself. Now, that's a little bit of a lesson um, in terms of where we've got to, but what if, and here's the question that I want to ask you today, what if the presence of those rules actually did the opposite? What if the presence of those rules actually give, did the opposite? What if the presence of those rules actually meant that God was for sex, and not only was he for sex, but that he was for you? And that's my second point. God is not against sex because he is for you. Now, if you've been established for a while, you may have heard me uh, talking about my grandfather. He was a drum maker in Ireland. And uh, what that meant was he made drums that were about this wide and about 54 inches in diameter, and it had a goat skin on either side. And he was actually a very famous man in our country. He made um, some of the best drums that people have ever heard. Um, but when you had talked to my, my grandfather's dead a long time now, but, but when you talk to him about his drums, uh, you start to hear a story. And, and it's a story that, that is really, really thought through and processed the whole way from the beginning to end. It includes the raising of goats. It, it includes giving them the right food, the right healthy environment. It includes doing things so that the hide doesn't get ruined. No, sorry, they ultimately get killed. Um, but the, it's, it, it includes choosing the right wood, which he got from Canada of all places for some parts, and then other wood for other parts of the drum. 
as he tells the story, he talks about the different nails um, that he would use for different parts of the drum to ensure that you wouldn't split the wood and you would get the best resonance out of the drum. And, and he did that because he took pleasure in building drums that sounded really, really good. And he wanted it to be the best drum in Ireland. And, and he did that. He would spend days, days sanding the wood. And I would come in to help him. And he would say, sand that bit of wood. And I touch it. And it's smooth as anything. And, and I go, that doesn't need sanding. And he's like, sand a piece of wood, son. Just keep going. And, uh, and he would just do it over and over and over again because he was meticulous about this thing that he loved. The skin was dealt with in, in, in such a meticulous way, the same process over and over and over again, the right kind of rope, the right angle of the hole so that it could hold the skin together so that you could get the right tension so that you could get the right note. And what he was looking for was this beautiful note that when you beat that drum that you would just hear this beautiful resonating sound in your ears. And it was only then that he put the stamp of approval on and said that it was very good. This was a drum from Jack Wilkinson. And when the person came to pick up the drum, um, unfortunately for some of them, they didn't just get the drum, right? They ended up having to sit down, have a cup of tea, maybe a whiskey, and hear the whole story about the drum. And in particular, how they might get the best out of that drum. When he gave a new drum to somebody, he told them the story of its purpose. He told them how they might get the best out of that drum and get the best note. And one of the ways that he did that was telling them not to do what not to do with it. It was actually giving them prohibitions around the drum, like not taking the drum out in the rain. Now, let me ask you a question. Is Jack against the drum? No. Is he against the drummer? No, hopefully you see where I'm going with this. He's not, is he? He didn't do that to inhibit or restrict his pleasure or his fun with the drum. He actually did it so that he would get the most out of this good thing that he had made for them. So that they would get that sweet, sweet note. Now, they might have got it if they took it out in the rain, for sure. They might have got it a little bit at best. But at worst, they might have broken it altogether. You see, the presence of rules ensured that the drummer got the best note and enjoyment from the drum. And I want to suggest to you today that it's similar when we think about God and sex. He made it, and it's been given his stamp of approval in Genesis. And, and he sits down, if you read it through and read through the story of the Bible, it's like he's sitting you down in the living room, and he's telling you about its purpose. And he wants you to get what's best out of it. And because he wants you to get what's best from that, he gives you some rules. How you might get the best note out of this wonderful gift. That's an awesome thing, isn't it? Now, the sexual revolution does promise us a similar thing. It does promise that we will get, if we have the absence of rules and if we have freedom to be able to express ourselves in whatever way we want, it does promise us that we will hit that sweet note, that, that we will hit our happily ever after, that we will achieve what it is that humans have been looking for all along. 
But does it deliver on its promises? Does it deliver? Now, in his book, A Better Story, um, which I'll put the links up on our Facebook page um, uh, tomorrow, uh, Glenn Harrison basically asks that question, right? He asks, look, have, the hap- have we got the happily ever after of the sexual revolution? And, and, now, and if it's delivered kind of more and better sex, which is what it promised, and a deeper sense of self and a deeper sense of relationships. And we don't have time to go into it all, but let me just highlight a couple of things that he says. He highlights, really, um, that actually Christians, first and foremost, need to see that there are lots of good things that came from the sexual revolution and individualism. Uh, So don't think for a second that I'm leaving them aside, but you'll have to go and have a look at them after. Um, But he points to a study in the UK. He's a British guy. He points to a study in the UK which I think shows at the very least that the jury's still out there, right? So there's this guy called David Spiegelhalter um, at Oxford University who carried out a study um, recently where he suggested that people are actually having less sex now and where they don't know why that is the case, some of the things that they're pointing to is that for men at least, um, they're far more likely to just want to sit in front of a computer, removing them from deep relationships. And a lot of those statistics kind of line up with our statistics around the multi-billion dollar um, thing called pornography. Contrary to all of the media claims that we have and that people are having more and better sex and younger sex and more outrageous sex, which there is truth in that, and he points to another survey that was done in Britain where they simply titled one newspaper, took it, and they said, look, Britain has lost its sexual swagger. And, and the reason why it said that was that, that basically between 2008 and 2014, they reckoned that most average people in the UK went from having sex seven times a month to having sex one t- or four times a month, just slightly over once a week. And it caused them to ask questions. Now, this doesn't prove or debunk anything, but I think it at least kind of points us to the fact that we have to ask deeper questions. If our worldview really is delivering. And then he goes on to highlight that we're experiencing more anxiety around the appearance of our bodies than we ever have before, that we're worried about the performance of sex, and because of that, men are actually getting more and more anxious about things like the size of their penis and all of that kind of stuff, and it's actually causing lots and lots of issues in our society. Now, let's not extrapolate too much on this, but I think when we look underneath the surface, that it might force us to ask some more questions. But also, too, right, some of the good things that I think undergirded the sexual revolution are things like we really valued and things like compassion and fairness and and oppression, particularly of individuals and, and, and people, and there were lots and lots of really good things that come out from that. Um, things that that I think are great things for our society. But I'm not sure that it really delivers on its promise of hitting those entirely, right? Why? Well, we've got more sex trafficking now than we ever have. We know that people are still crushed by other people's freedoms around sex. We know that things like rape haven't gone away. We know that our children are being over-pornified, and and the list does go on if you look underneath. Now, this is what Harrison concludes from all of this. 
and it will come up on the screen. The bravado of the sexual revolution with its clarion call of freedom and liberated pleasure has turned out to be a weak, vulnerable thing needing constant coddling by an army of agony ants and sex therapists. And because it never quite delivers, people end up thumbling, uh, tumbling through a, through a copy of Fifty Shades of Grey or making yet even more swipes on the Tinder app or another visit to a pornography site. But we don't need studies or Harrison to tell us this, do we? I think this is our experience. This has been my experience. And and I think it at least leads us to ask the question, does the absence of rules, and particularly rules around sex, lead to more pleasure and the flourishing of humans? Or could it be that actually the presence of the right rules under a loving God who gives us the gift of sex actually be something that is for our flourishing, that it actually brings us something that we desire. Now, just before I finish, I do want to say that for sure, you know, like I've critiqued a little bit of the sexual revolution here. Christians actually need to take the plank out of their own eye as well. And we've done terribly bad at this. Terribly bad. We've been hypocrites in our own lives and and even as churches and institutions and whatever, we've done some very, very shameful, shameful and evil things. We haven't been good ambassadors of Jesus and showing compassion to people that we disagree with. And we need to say sorry for that. We need to recognize that. And we need to work out ways that we don't just use sex as as a battle axe in this culture war that we're caught up in. Because it's not going to do anybody any good. And all of those things are true, but can I just say that they are just part of the story. The media and our culture and our worldview will make you believe that this is the entire story, but it is not. It hasn't been the entire story the whole way throughout history, and it's not the entire story now. Is God against sex? No, he's not against sex. He's not against sex because he made it. He made it with a particular purpose in mind. He made it so that we could build long-lasting relationships. He made it so that we can have pleasure. He made it in created bodies where we would have security and safety. And he's not against sex because he is actually for us. And I believe that the presence of the rules that we see in the Bible, far from showing us that he is against sex, actually shows us that he is for it. Now, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a bit of music. And uh, during music time, uh, I'm just going to take a bit of a breather, and then we'll come back up in a few minutes, and uh, we'll do a bit of a Q&A. So text your t- questions in. Keep on doing that. But I'm going to just pray for us quickly. Um, Father God, I thank you that we get opportunities like this to talk about big things. Um, Lord God, would you help us now to be able to um, ask deep questions of ourselves and our own presuppositions and beliefs? Um, Would you help us to love and honor each other well? But most importantly, Lord, um, would you help us to just shine a massive light on your son, Jesus? And we thank you um, for him. And we thank you that we are bound together um, today because of him by your spirit. Amen. I found out the way to your heart And found myself completely lost <laughs> Answer
everything here today, but hopefully give you little nuggets and hooks and things to go away and keep on asking questions yourself. Um, that's what we're hoping to do. Um, but on a bigger scale than that, what we're hoping to do is that at least let you see that Jesus does give answers to life's big questions. And, uh, and if we can do that together, then I reckon that's a great thing, right? And um, that we can actually work some of this stuff out um, together as we go along. So, Awesome. Well, well, thank you very much for all the questions you've texted in, guys. We'll, like Lee said, I'll delete them all from our phone after we're done. But yeah, we're really keen to get into this and hear what you have to say. You're you want the first question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, the first question. Just because God created sex, does that really mean I have to live out my sexuality in the way that he wants? Can't I just do what I want with my own body? No, you don't need to live the way that God has described that you need to live. And yes, you can do what you want with your own body. Um, that's the short answer. Uh, and in fact, I think that God makes us in such a way that we have an autonomy to be able to choose to follow him or not follow him. Uh, that goes for kind of absolutely everything in our lives, actually. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that's, that's been challenging for Christians is to, over time is to work out how to take what they believe to be true, not just for Christians, but for all people, and work that out in the public sphere. And sometimes we've overstepped the mark in that by forcing everyone to follow what we do. Um, but I don't think that God actually does that. I think he actually gives us freedom to be able to do what we choose. But the kicker is this. If there is a God who made us, and, and he is a God who made sex, and he wants us to get the best out of it, then why wouldn't we wrestle with what it might look like to follow him and to follow his plan? And, and if you want to engage with that a little bit more, uh, the last two sermons are actually connected with this one, the one on science and the one on freedom. They're connected because what I try to do in those sermons is point to the possibility of a creator God. And, uh, and if there is a creator God, that kind of changes everything. Um, you also need to engage with what the alternative is and what that looks like and whether or not it, it really um, answers what you're looking for in one sense, I think. So short answer is you can do whatever you want, kind of, uh, because you're always bound up in community and whatever else. Uh, God gives you an autonomy to be able to choose him or not choose him. But I think choosing him and choosing to live his way is actually the best way for human flourishing, even though it's hard even though there's some pretty tough things in that. And the only way that we can do that is through Jesus and trusting in, in him and getting to know him. So, Awesome. Second question. What should a person do now if in the past they have given in to sexual desires outside of marriage? What should they do now? Yeah, that sounds like, um, like I asked that question, maybe. Um, I actually just want to be... My mother-in-law's laughing. Uh, <laughs> Um, but but I, I do want to be really transparent, and I think part of what we need to do as Christians is be transparent, that that is my story, and, uh, and I needed to work out the answer to that question um, because I actually believed the alternative story and kept on going down that route, and, and it didn't seem to deliver 
for me. I became a Christian. I still wrestled with it. And it wasn't just before I became a Christian. It was even after I became a Christian. And I had to keep on asking it. And even now, as a married guy, married for 13 years with a wife that I love, um, it's still because Jesus talks about all of this stuff as being like even the things in the heart, not just the things that you actually do. So I'm still wrestling with this to some degree in terms of how my selfishness comes out in regards to attitudes towards sex and all of that kind of stuff. So I hope that you're asking this question, even if you weren't the person who asked it. What do you do? And here's one of the things that, that I find a remarkable, remarkable passage in, um, in, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul, one of the apostles of Jesus, he's writing to this church who are, they're just going sex wild, right? Like, like they're, they're sleeping with their mother-in-laws, they're sleeping with, with all sorts of people, and they're, they're, they're just, um, they're living what was probably the normal culture of the day. And, and here's, here's what Paul says to them, right? Uh, I'll just pick it up from verse 10. Um, he says, do not, be, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or nor, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you, what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying, look, there are all of these things that you have done, not, in, not limited to sex, that are outside of God's plan for you. And that's what the, the, the Bible kind of categorizes those things as sin. And, and those things that, that you have done, they, they are not good things. You don't get the best out of life from doing them, and you certainly don't get the best out of the relationship with God from that either. But, but, he says, that's what some of you were. And what he's saying here to the people um, who are following Jesus in, in the Corinthian church is that there's something that has changed now in terms of their identity and who they are. And it means that they are people who have been saved by Jesus. And if they've been saved by Jesus and if they've been forgiven by him, that that's something that stands for the whole time. And, uh, and we need to stand in the light of that. Now, when you get to something like 1 John 1, 9, we see that part of that looks like that we acknowledge that we've got sin. We don't deny it, but then that we actually come and ask for forgiveness. So it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin, and he will do it. And he will forgive you, and you can be forgiven, and you can be rid of the guilt and the shame of that, even though you still may need to live with the consequences of it. And that's sometimes tricky and sometimes hard, and it's sometimes hard to believe. Right. On the back of that, is sex okay outside of marriage if it is still between a couple who are in a loving, committed relationship but aren't married? Yeah. Um, so I'll tell you just kind of fairly simply. We'll, we'll keep, I'll keep this one short. And basically, the Bible says that anything other than sex inside of marriage between a man and a woman is something that is outside of God's plan for sex and outside of his plan for us. And, and the, the most basic reading of the Bible will show you that. 
Um, and it's very important for us as Christians not to kind of, not to just skim over that. Um, it's not just talking about one particular sex, it's talking about all sex. And, and again, I think I would just say you have to ask, are those rules there for our flourishing or for the restriction of our freedom? You need to work that out. Um, now, one of the reasons why I think that is when you go to Matthew, I think it's like Matthew 19, something like that, Matthew 19, 4, um, Jesus actually refers back, he's challenged on, on marriage, and, and he actually refers back to this Genesis passage that we were talking about, which doesn't use the word marriage, right? Um, it, it, it talks about a relationship, and it's really easy to just see that maybe this is a loving relationship between two people. Um, but Jesus himself referred to that passage as marriage, or he at least drew the link between the two. So you can go and have a look at that. It's Matthew 19, verse 4. Um, and, and I think if that's what Jesus is saying, then I, I think certainly for me as a follower of Jesus, I want to take that up first. I'm not saying that that's easy. I'm actually not even saying that I've done that myself um, in, in the past. Uh, but I do believe that, that actually the those things that God gives us is actually for our flourishing. So, so the, the, the straight kind of, if you were just to read through the Bible, I think that's the answer you would say. Now, there's more, there is more to it than that. But mm. Maybe you can come chat to Lee a bit yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Uh, the next one is an interesting one. Uh, would you recommend that a husband and a wife who are struggling with whether to stay together due to infidelity or unable unevenly yoked spiritual standings, would you recommend for them to continue having sex or to stop having sex? Okay. So I'm, I'm going to try and understand the question because I think there's a couple of things going on there. Um, can you read it once more for me, Liam? Would you recommend that a husband and a wife who are struggling with whether to stay together or not due to infidelity or being unevenly yoked spiritually... Uh, would you recommend for them to continue having sex or to stop having sex? Okay. Um, I, I'm going to assume that this is maybe a live issue um, for some of you, so I'd, I'd love it if you felt comfortable to come and chat to me afterwards because we, we can't deal with all of this now, but it, it sounds like uh, what you're saying is that there's a, a relationship, a married relationship, where possibly one person is a Christian and the other one is not, and that phrase unequally yoked, I think that's what it's pointing to. And there's been an infidelity in that relationship. And the question is, should you stay together and should you keep on having sex? I've, that's the way at least I'm going to take um, that question. Um, Paul, the apostle in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, I think, certainly when he's dealing with relationships between a, a marriage relationship between a person who is a Christian and a person who is not a Christian, he seems to suggest that on the blanket, forget about the other bit for a second, that on the blanket that it is good for them to stay together um, in that arrangement. Um, so that doesn't then include the, the introduction of an infidelity there. Um, I think that must just be a, a hugely difficult thing um, to deal with. I, I think, I, I don't know what to say in terms of should you continue having sex? Because I feel like the most important thing is working out the non-sex part of your relationship and the break of trust that has happened there and working out your continuing to be together. And Paul, interestingly, seems to have a category which he calls 
separation for the purposes of getting back together again. And, and I think there's one avenue is that if you guys can't work that out and you've, you've got stuff that's, that's going on, that there is a way of being able to separate so that you can let waters kind of just chill out a little bit so that you can actually deal with the issue and, and get back to working out how you bring around um, the resolution. Um, I've seen people, Christians, who have had infidelity in their marriages and, and because of Jesus that they, they have come out the other side of that and have got wonderful, beautifully strong marriages because they practice forgiveness and they practice working out how to deal with that very, very deeply. Um, but I'm not suggesting that that is easy. And uh, just because you can forgive doesn't mean that you necessarily trust straight away. Uh, I think it's just a hugely complex issue um, in that regard. But I do think that Paul at least gives us some way of working it out. Can I just say one thing? Um, because I don't know the context. If some of the things that's happening in and around this issue for you is that there, there is abuse or power plays or anything like that then going on, I am not saying that you need to stay there and in that context. So please do not hear me saying that. If that is some of the things that's happening, then you need to get help. You need to speak to someone and you need to actually remove yourself from that context. Now, I'm probably le reading too much into that, but I do want to be very, very conscious of the fact that sometimes that is our, our, our context. So, so there, there are some things to say, um, and I do think that there is hope in Jesus to be able to work through it, but I do think that it's pretty tough. Mm. Um, pl please come and chat to me of that, like if you feel comfortable in doing that. That's good. Uh, two more questions. For those who are married, how do we get the best out of our sex life? <laughs> uh, do it. Um, I, I, and do, yeah, do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, look, look it's, it's a great question, isn't it? We, we all come with baggage to our marriages. Catherine and I have been married for 13 years. We do marriage enrichment at least once a year. Every year, apart from probably two years, we've talked about sex, right? And uh, we talk about sex a lot because it's something that you don't just kind of hit the ground and it just get into the groove. And even if you do hit the ground and get into the groove, at some point that'll change or kids will come along and it'll completely ruin your whole picture, right? So, um, <laughs> it's, so, so it's never, a, it, we think that it should just happen, that you should just walk in through the door and your wife's there in a fancy dress ready to kind of pounce on you. And it's, it's not true. It's not true. It's something that you have to work really, really hard at. But if you're committed at building a lifelong relationship um, with one another, then you'll take the advice of Paul, which is basically, he says, look, do not, do not have periods that's that long where you don't have sex, right? And the, the, there's a period where you kind of decide to not have sex because you're praying and whatever else. Um, that he's basically saying, look, you should have sex and have lots of it because it binds you together as a husband and wife. You should just not be doing it enforcing or emotionally manipulating one another. So you have to constantly talk about desires because there's always desire mismatch. You have to constantly talk about what works and what doesn't work. Let me give you one book. It's called The Best Sex for Life by Patricia Wirakun. And in there, she's actually got a three-week program that you can caress and do whatever else with um, your wife uh, and your husband and, and, and whatever so that you can work out how to get the best out of sex. And so that you can work out how sex isn't just for orgasm, but actually for so much more than that, and how you can get the best sex for life. So read that book. It's called The Best Sex 
for life. I'm going to read it as well when I go home. And, um, and jump on the, the Facebook <laughs> page for Establish. Someone put up, it was me, I shouldn't say someone. Yeah. I put up a Desiring God article which is talking about yeah. three misunderstandings about sex and then three like powerful intuitive ways that we've understood what God has said to us about sex and how we can do it for the other person and, and serve the other person. Someone once said to me, out-serve your partner yeah. in sex. Yeah. Uh, give us the last one, Liam. Final question. Yeah. Uh, can we still have a full life in Jesus even if our sexual desires are never satisfied? Oh, that's not the one that I thought you were going to ask me at the end. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, you can, um, is, the, is the short answer. Look, there's, there are bigger philosophical categories that come into the, under play here. One of them is what it is that makes a person a person and what is essential to our humanity. And I've said that God makes us with the anatomy and all the physiology for sex, so therefore you would assume that then to be fully human is to fully kind of realize that. Um, but if we're going to get a good, healthy Christian picture, at least of what it means to be human, we need to look at the person of Jesus. And when we look at the person of Jesus, uh, he was single and he didn't have sex. And I don't think we would say that he was less human or less fulfilled. Now, we're not Jesus, uh, so it's way harder than that um, for us. But um, I... I I was reading, so there's this book, it's called A Better Story, uh, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. And, um, and here's what he said. I actually did highlight this before because I thought it was, it's something to think about. I, I'm still thinking through it myself, right? Um, and basically what he's saying is, look, because sex and our sexuality is not the final destination, which is what our culture believes, it's a sign. And it's a sign that points to something far greater it's a sign that points to a far greater relationship um, with a loving God who will always be faithful with us. And, and because of that, it's something then that speaks about the glory of God. And because it speaks about the glory of God, therefore it doesn't matter whether or not we have sex or don't have sex per se, at least from a mental perspective, uh, that both of those ways of dealing with sex as they obey God's rules actually point to the brilliance of sex and the brilliance of the God who lies behind it um, because we kind of value that so much. And this is what he says, uh, but what about single people? And there's other people that come into this category, and he says this, it's important to grasp that single Christians who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond both paint pictures of God's faithfulness, but in different ways. Denying yourself something can be just as potent a picture of a thing's goodness as helping yourself to it. Now, now I don't know how that sits with you. I'm still thinking it through myself, but I find that quite profound. I, I don't know that I've heard it put this way um, before. So here's, here's the next bit, and then we'll finish. Similarly, both single and married people who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond to the, point to the same thing. They both deploy their sexuality in ways that serve as a sign of the kingdom and the faithful character of God's passion. Now, I don't think that's easy, and I certainly don't think that's easy, um, but I do think that that's a good thought to be thinking about. Hey, can I pray for us? Have we got time for a song?
one song? Okay. I'm going to pray for us while the guys come up. Father God, um, there's a lot in this for us to wrestle with. I, I just pray that today for those of us who have got deeper questions that, that you lead us to the answers, um, but that you lead us to see that, that your burdens or, or that your laws are not burdensome, but they're actually light in Jesus. Um, that you lead us to see that even when we uh, don't follow them entirely, that they are fully met in Jesus. And uh, help us to see as well, Lord, like the psalmist says, that, that actually even when we look at it, that it's something that brings us delight and it's something that brings us blessing. Um, Lord God, help us to see that and help us to tell that wonderful story. Amen.